You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome. Welcome to Monday once again, right here. It's Fired Up Radio on WJMS.com. This is Steve. Each week, we talk everything political machine, and uh, we've got a lot to pack in for this episode. But uh, if I could, first, I'd uh, like to ask a moment of personal privilege. Uh, hope everyone had a very enjoyable and very safe Thanksgiving. Uh, went and attended a very small family gathering uh, for Thanksgiving and uh, gave some thanks for the things that I'm blessed with in my life, even in this, this year of 2020, with all the trial and tribulation we've been facing. Uh, first, we um, had uh, some excitement at the Thanksgiving dinner as uh, my stepdaughter, Victoria, uh, got proposed to by her boyfriend, Jonathan, and she said yes. So congratulations to Jonathan and Vicki on their engagement, and we're looking forward to a very, very beautiful wedding at some point down the road once we clear the COVID, uh, coronavirus uh, situation. Uh, I was very happy about that. Uh, it was a very, very nice, sweet moment. Now, the second thing, and again, I'm asking a little bit of indulgence here. Um, on this date, back in 1986, uh, actually it was about 3.40 in the afternoon, um, I was handed a 6-pound, 13-ounce little bundle of joy. Uh, my youngest daughter, Jamie, was born on this day uh, in Boston and want to send a special shout out to her. You guys know her now as Jams or Ms. CEO. She is the owner and CEO of WJMS Radio and she's also my daughter and I'm sending out a, a shout out to her from myself and the Fired Up Radio Show. Happy birthday, Jamie. Uh, you have moved mountains and done incredible things uh, thus far in your young life and there's still so much more for you to do. Uh, I am blessed to have you as part of my family as one of my three uh, most prized treasures, uh, you and your your brother and sister. And I'm, I'm just uh, over the moon with all of the things that you've accomplished and all of the things that you will accomplish. So, uh, Happy birthday, and, and let me bring in a little musical uh, salute to you real quick, and then we'll get into the show. Happy birthday, Jamie. Um, many happy return to the day. I love you, and I'm so very, very, very proud of you. Okay, thank you, everybody, for letting me uh, have that little moment of personal privilege. I appreciate it. Let's get right into our show, starting off, as we always do, with our current update on the coronavirus pandemic. So we continue in this country to set records uh, every day. Uh, we have added over a million new cases uh, in this past week, and we're currently at 13.3 million uh, people who have contracted the coronavirus, and uh, over 267,000 uh, have, have died from the disease. It continues to, to rage across the country uh, on what is becoming more and more a positive side, uh, progress is being made toward getting uh, the, the first two of uh, quite a few vaccines that are coming out. Uh, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines should clear their uh, FDA emergency authorization use and doses are already in transit to States, uh, it is projected that they'll have about 40 million doses prepared, uh, and that would be 
able to treat uh, 20 million people as both vaccines require two doses. So, you know, we continue to make progress. However, we, the people, we need to do our part and make sure that we are following all of the scientific and medical community guidance that we've been receiving for months and months now. And, you know, that is, you know, keeping our distance when in uh, crowded situations, uh, wearing a mask when social distancing isn't possible, uh, washing our hands, you know, practicing good hygiene in order to keep the spread of the disease uh, as low as possible. Uh, we, we still see, you know, some really horrific numbers if we don't follow these guidelines. So, you know, I'll add my voice to the chorus. Uh, everybody, let's follow what the doctors and the scientists are telling us. And they're telling us to mask up, to stay distant, and to practice good hygiene, particularly hands and, and surfaces, wiping down surfaces with disinfectant. And, and let's do what we can to slow the spread of this virus as we await for the widespread distribution of the vaccines. Well, it's been another amazing week and amazing, not necessarily in the good sense, but you know, progress is being made. Uh, since we last spoke, the Administrator of the Government Services Administration, or GSA, has in fact issued the authorizations for the transition of power mechanisms to be activated uh, as President-elect and Vice President-elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris uh, continue the work of preparing to take over the uh, administration, the executive branch of the government. Uh, come January 20th of next year. And that means that there is funding available to them and access to office space and more importantly, access to the key people in vital areas of the government that the transition team needs to talk to to be updated on what the current events are, what's going on, uh, what are the important things that are ongoing that they will need to keep going, you know, and you know, what other things do they need to be engaged with on day one? Uh, additionally, uh, President-elect Biden has begun appointing members of his cabinet, and we will go through a, a complete list of those appointees. Uh, probably on next week's show, we'll have a better sense of some more of the key cabinet positions that are expected to be announced this week. So once we get that list, I'll have some uh, updates and feedback on who President-elect Biden is selecting to work in his cabinet and you know, what uh, they will mean for the administration going forward. So stay tuned for that. That will be coming up probably in next week's show. And meanwhile, on the other side of the aisle, uh, the GOP and the, uh, the Trump administration uh, in its last two months in office uh, continue to practice what appears to be a scorched earth policy in terms of things they are putting in place to uh, hamper somewhat or you know, create situations that the Biden administration is going to have to deal with right off the bat. And um, you know, a couple of those that I wanted to talk about this week, uh, the first one, the Supreme Court, which by all definition, and according to you know, the, the uh, rules and, and guidelines set down in the, in the Constitution and our founding documents, is supposed to be an apolitical uh, third co-equal branch of government uh, specifically to deal with judicial decision issues, uh, where you know, law has not already been passed or there is no guidance that can be obtained you know, from the Constitution or its supporting documents for a given situation. Court trials are heard, you know, suits are brought, seeking clarity and clarification. And ultimately, it can wend its way through the court system up to the Supreme Court, which, as you know, uh, due to you know, President Trump having three uh, appointments to the Supreme Court during his term as president, uh, stands at a 6-3 uh, 
uh, majority in, in favor of the conservative uh, philosophy of governing, uh, not necessarily you know, in lockstep with conservative uh, politics and attitudes, but clearly the, there is a favor to those uh, conservative issues and values that are brought before them. Now, as we've talked about in prior issues, this has not made them a complete 100% rubber stamp for conservative issues. In particular, two of the three appointed judges uh, from the Trump administration have actually gone against uh, initiatives that have been brought before the Supreme Court uh, in, in, in a, a conservative sense in that they have voted with the you know, liberal slash progressive minority of the court and struck down a couple of key provisions, including most recently, and as we've seen in the news, that um, a, a half a dozen or so cases that have been brought before the Supreme Court with relation to uh, voter fraud and, and election issues in the 2020 election have been you know, thrown out of court at both the the regional and district federal level, as well as uh, the Supreme Court level. And, you know, the, the Trump administration has brought, I mean, as of, as of today, as this show's broadcast date, the Trump administration has brought some 32 or 33 cases before uh, district and federal appeals judges, as well as a couple of cases uh, that have been uh, brought to to the Supreme Court, uh, and of those, only two had either a complete decision that was upheld or a partial decision that was upheld. All of the rest of the issues brought at the state level and the appeals level by the Trump administration in terms of the outcome of the election have been rejected uh, out of hand, and in some cases with some prejudice, by the courts uh, primarily due to no evidence having been presented to support the arguments being made. Now, as you know, with this show, we deal with the, the mechanics of, of the political system and not so much the personalities of, this, of the political system unless they are you know, intricately, intricately involved in you know, the, the issue at hand. And it, it must be said that in my observing of the cases that have been presented, uh, in all truth, the, the Trump administration has done um, a poor job of bringing cases that have been well thought through, well prepared, and well backed up with solid evidence uh, in these court cases. And again, in my opinion, they have created sort of this, uh, this animus against uh, their positions by the courts just based on the fact that they keep bringing these, quote, frivolous lawsuits, close quote, uh, against the election process. Um, but at the, end, at the end of the day, we also have to take a look and see that uh, this seems to fly in the face of what uh, we have throughout our history believed as a non-political arm of the government uh, in the judiciary where its role is solely to interpret and establish law where existing you know documented law uh, as you know laid out in the Constitution or as you know presented in the supporting documents that have been written over time and precedents that have been set in court uh, if those don't exist as I said earlier you know lawsuits are brought and the courts weigh in to decide, you know, based on what our laws are, how this particular case or how this particular matter should be decided. And what we have seen over uh, the last uh, you know, 12, 14, 16 years or so has been an increasing politicization of the Supreme Court, by, for example. Uh, it is it is clear that you know there's always been some kind of political bias in the court. Obviously, justices to the Supreme Court are are appointed 
and approved by the party in power, you know, and you have um, justices who are appointed by Democrats, and now you have a majority of justices that have been appointed by the Republicans. So, you know, some bias, you know, is anticipated. I think what is different uh, with the, the shape of the court at this point is what has happened in the past is that even though uh, a, a Supreme Court of one given time or another may be considered conservative or liberal, uh, they have still defaulted to an interpretation of the law and for the most part have you know, laid politics to the side or at least not, as, not considered it as heavily as they have in their, their deference to the precedent of the law. Now, you know, that, that goes even with this current court. As I said, um, two of uh, President Trump's appointees have gone against his preferred uh, approach in a couple of matters. And, you know, their reasoning were there, was that there was you know, no support, no basis for them in the fact of law. And that's a good thing. I think our Supreme Court, you know, no matter what the makeup, can be what it is supposed to be, and that is a fair and equitable arbiter of the law when the legal precedents and the, the rules of, of the law are followed and are taken solely into account, and to the extent humanly possible that emotion and political affiliation and so forth doesn't come into play. Now, remains to be seen as we move forward because the, the justices that have been appointed in, in this current uh, presidential cycle are going to be on the bench for many decades. If you look at, for example, the latest appointment to the bench, uh, Justice Barrett, uh, it is within the realm of possibility that she could serve on the Supreme Court for you know, 30 years or more. Uh, given her age and, and you know, God willing, uh, her health and, you know, nothing else occurs. Um, so, you know, the, the effect that this administration will have on the shape of the law in this country uh, is going to be felt for quite some time. Uh, one of the things that the Trump administration has done is they've appointed more than 200 federal-level judges to the bench um, you know, side note, many of them are, are considered not fully uh, qualified and have been rated as unqualified by entities such as the American Bar Association. But on the other hand, a lot of them are, you know, young. And since these are lifetime appointments, they will be on the bench for quite a while. So, you know, one of the, one of the gains that we're going to have to deal with as we go forward, not only through the Biden administration in the next four years, but through administrations that come after that, uh, is we're going to have to deal with this, uh, you know, conservative majority uh, led judiciary and, you know, see what additional appointments are made. Uh, it will be interesting to see if appointments that come from the Biden administration uh, are approved with the same level of speed and, uh, and discussion as Trump appointees. Uh, one need only look back to the, the post-2010 midterms to see what a, an opposition Congress, specifically the Senate, can do for judicial appointments to administration. Um, as many of the, the openings that Trump has filled in the last four years were openings that were left open from the Obama administration where the Republican-led Senate simply refused to hear any appointees to the bench from the Obama administration at all. So, you know, it, it, it's something that we as the, the citizens are going to have to keep our eye on. We're going to have to be in communication with uh, the House and Senate uh, at the federal level and let them know that you know, the, the status of our country, the things we need to get done, 
require that we have as fully staffed a judiciary as we can and that you know we're not going to tolerate you know these continued games with we're not appointing any of yours because you're a democrat and i'm a republican so we need to make sure that we're communicating that message to our leaders um, as well and you know it is it is just another example of some of the games that we have seen being played as we have moved post-election you know into the transition period to the new administration um, you know there are uh, a number of things i've already mentioned the court cases that have been brought to try and overturn the election and you know it is it is clear that 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 it, it is a done deal joe biden is going to be the next president of the united states that will become official on the 14th of December when the electors are certified by the, the Senate. And, you know, that is the final step in the approval process for the presidency of the United States and vice presidency. And once we get there, then it's, you know, full steam ahead to inauguration and the Biden administration will take over the reins of government uh, in this country. Um, there are some other things, and we're, we're going to spend the balance of this show kind of talking about some of the things that, that we're seeing going on uh, in terms of what our elected officials are doing or not doing that are impacting a huge number of Americans going forward. Um, the first one we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the looming eviction deadline. Uh, at the end of December, the moratorium on evictions and foreclosures uh, in this country will expire unless the House and Senate act to extend it. Uh, this was put in place under the CARES Act back in March, and basically it protected renters and homeowners from being evicted from their home uh, if they were you know, adversely impacted by the coronavirus and are in, in the midst of suffering, you know, financial hardship, as as many of us, myself included, are, uh, you know, being out of out of work uh, for months on end, and that expires at the end of December. So what officials are telling us is that on January first, we could see somewhere you know, around or more than 19 million Americans who will be forced out of their homes because the protections against them being evicted have expired. Uh, this is going to create not only a huge economic hardship for these uh, many, many millions of Americans, it's going to put them at greater risk uh, in this pandemic environment. It's going to, you know, affect the children in terms of their education. If they don't have a place to live, they don't have a place uh, to get internet, they don't have a place where they can even attend a virtual school system. They will be out uh, of luck in terms of, of their education. It's going to create a hardship for those uh, who may not be evicted, but yet still have to you know, pay that rent or mortgage. And there was an article written about it, and let me get that for you. Um, you know, it says millions of Americans, and this came from the from Money Watch, uh, as reported by Irina Ivanova, and this was on the 27th of November. Report issued this month from the National Low Income Housing Coalition and the University of Arizona estimates that 6.7 million households could be evicted in the coming months. That amounts to 19 million people potentially losing their homes, rivaling the dislocation that foreclosures caused after the subprime housing bust back in the early 2000s. Uh, apart from being a humanitarian disaster, the crisis threatens to exacerbate the coronavirus pandemic, according to a forthcoming study in the Journal of Urban Health. Uh, our and, and quotes here by from Andrew Arand, uh, 
our concern, quote, is we are going to see a huge increase in evictions after the CDC moratorium is list lifted. Uh, and uh, or Andrew Orrand is the vice president of research at the NLIHC and a co-author of the report. So the, the moratorium that was imposed was spearheaded by the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, as a health emergency measure uh, because of the, the coronavirus pandemic. And they you know, accurately said how evicting or putting so many people into a homeless situation will increase the number of people that get infected by COVID drastically. Therefore, some protections were needed. Even moratoriums imposed at the state, and in some case the city level, all will still also expire uh, at some point within the coming months, maybe at the end of December or a little bit beyond that. Unless there's action taken at the federal and state level to continue and extend these protections uh, from evictions for renters and homeowners. In addition, there's a call out for legislation that would actually be a rent relief program uh, to address the fact that in the current scenario, even if you manage to avoid eviction, your landlord still has the ability to charge you and require you to pay all of the back rent that you have accrued uh, until you know December 31st. And realize in some cases that could be seven or eight months worth of rent uh, on top of someone maybe just coming back from being you know furloughed due to the pandemic. So there's some work to be done there as well. Um, we're gonna take a break and when we come back we're gonna pick this up on the other side and continue with some other uh, elements going on in terms of uh, what uh, our government is or is not doing with regard to the political system here in this country. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve. We'll be right back after the break.
And welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve sitting in the chair as always each week giving you the lowdown on what's going on with the political machine here in the United States. Uh, we ended the first segment or we left the first segment talking about the impending uh, end of the uh, rent and mortgage moratorium that was put in place to assist homeowners and renters uh, who were facing hard economic times due to the coronavirus pandemic. That's going to expire unless it's expanded by Congress and the Senate uh, on December 31st. Uh, there's another situation that uh, could reach a crisis level in the new year uh, with Congress uh, yet to pass another coronavirus relief package. Uh, in addition to the 19 million Americans who potentially could be homeless as a result by the end of the year, about 12 million Americans are set to lose their unemployment benefits the day after Christmas, uh, a sharp fall in income that would make it harder for many people to pay rent, which plays into the, uh, the rental moratorium. An abrupt cutoff would slash income by about 19 billion, with a B, per month. And this is from Nancy Vanden Houten, lead economist at Oxford Economics, uh, in a research note that she published. Uh, although the Trump administration has restricted evictions for most households through the end of the year, in quoting Ms. Van Houten, Ms. Houghton, it did not relieve renters of the need to pay rent. That means many renters may face a payment cliff at, the, at year's end when they must pay several months of back rent, on top of which having lost their unemployment benefits uh, a few weeks prior to that, it's just going to create a nightmare situation for you know 19 million uh, homeowners and renters and 12 million uh, unemployed Americans, you know, right at the time when we will be in the midst probably of this second wave of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and, you know, it, it just is another example of games that are being played by our leaders. Uh, another one that came across the wires, and this one uh, came from uh Jake Johnson of Common Dreams, uh, and this came across my news feeds, and it is the Senate GOP is being excoriated for delivering a cruel slap in the face to federal workers who have risked their lives during the pandemic. And what that entails is the GOP administration is looking at freezing the wages of all federal employees uh, in order to free up money to help keep government operations afloat uh, unless Congress and the Senate can agree on a budget deal to keep the funding in place for the government. We are facing what could be another government shutdown, which would occur right on top of the other two uh, issues that I just discussed. and. You know, it, it is an across-the-board pay freeze for civilian federal workers in 2021 as part of their plan to fund agencies amid the deadly corona coronavirus pandem pandemic and resulting economic crisis. Mr. Johnson goes on, and again quoting his, art, his article, uh, employee organizations and Democratic lawmakers reacted with outrage after Republicans on the Senate Appropriations Committee quietly unveiled their pay freeze proposal earlier this month with the largest union of federal workers calling the plan a cruel, and this is in quotes, a cruel slap in the face for those who have risked their lives to maintain government services for all Americans during the worst health crisis in our lifetime, close quote. It, it is just, you know, a, another example of the tone deafness that seems to be part of the Republican makeup, you know, in our leadership at this time, in that for all of their language talking about how they care about the American people, these things are being, you know, left hanging out to dry while Americans are, are scrambling 
to you know put food on the table and pay the bills and keep a roof over their head and you know keep their vehicles so that when they can go back to work they'll be able to get there uh, and it is just you know mind-boggling at the apparent lack of caring that seems to be coming from the current administration and the current leadership uh, in, in regards to the impacts that the coronavirus is having across all segments of American life. Um, Jessica, Jessica Clement, Staff Vice President for Programs and Policy at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, noted that, quote, this is a year when federal employees have stepped up to respond to a global pandemic with tens of thousands on the front lines working on behalf of the American people and contracting COVID-19 in the process. Yet they face the proposal of a pay freeze, close quote, said Clement. There's not, uh, quote again, there's not just an affront to uh, public service. It's a policy that risks losing highly competent and productive employees from the ranks of our federal government to the detriment of the citizens they serve. We seem to forget that, you know, the government isn't run by, you know, 435 people in the House and the Senate and, you know, the, the couple of hundred people that work in the executive branch. Uh, it is run by literally hundreds of thousands of federal employees day in, day out at every agency of the federal government who are not political appointees, who are, are, are civilian workers, career employees, uh, for whom this is their everyday job, and that is making our government run and do the things that it needs to do. So the idea that you know these people who, while many of us uh, were forced to quarantine or chose to quarantine or were laid off and, and quarantined by necessity, I guess is the better word. Um, these people have continued to go to work every day to face the public, to face the risk of COVID-19, uh, and continue to keep all the essential services that our government provides going. And, you know, it, it begs the question, and I guess this, this is, you know, something to raise to your to your political leaders out there. Uh, in particular, I, I direct this to you know, those of you that support the Republican Party. And again, I'm not singling you out, but the Republicans are still, until the end of January, the party in control of two-thirds of the government. Um, you know, are our senators and are our congressmen, are they still gonna get paid or is their pay been frozen as well? Um, you know, are the you know, members of the executive branch uh, who are also government employees, are they, you know, freezing their pay or is it just going to be the rank and file, just going to be the little people? You know, I, I know where if I was a betting man, I would place my money as to who is on the chopping block here with regard to pay freezes. Um, you know, just going out, just just putting that out there, just saying so, you know, we, we've talked about on this show and, and we continually talk about it. And in fact, it is one of the key fundamentals of what this show is about to pull a curtain back and identify these brinksmanship games that are being played by our political leaders, uh, especially at the federal level, but to uh, an additional extent to the state and local level. You know, it, it, it should be noted that some of the states who are currently suffering the largest number of increases in coronavirus cases are ones where the governors of those states uh, have been among the most vocal opponents of the, the health concern guidelines that have been put forward by the medical community, by the uh, the scientific community uh, in regards to mask wearing, distancing, and, and hygiene. Um, and, you know, it, it just makes you look and wonder as how can you look at in, in states that have, you know, seen their coronavirus cases, you know, double, triple, quadruple, and in some cases quintuple 
over the last four or five months and still not support or encourage the the wearing of masks, the social distancing, the the hygiene requirements, um, and, and yet still profess to represent their constituents, the people of their states, uh, of their counties, of their cities and towns. Um, you know, as as we get past this, and and we will. Um, you know, America is resilient. America is powerful. America is strong. We are, are rich in scientific, medical, and technical capacity. We will, uh, you know, beat this coronavirus back. And while it will probably never, ever go away completely, it will become, as, as I said in last week's show, one more thing that we deal with every year as a matter of practice, the same as uh, every year, you know, we go out and we get our flu shots. Um, it, it will become, you know, just another thing that we do, you know, taking our shoes off before we board a plane, going through security, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, how can you, you stand in the face of the families in your state who are losing loved ones, you know, at, at the rate of dozens per day and, you know, continue to be opposed to the few simple things that we, the people, can do to keep ourselves safe. You know, that, that is something I just do not understand. Um, but to get back to, to the subject, so, you know, on top of the, you know, the, the impending housing crisis, we also have a, a pay freeze among government workers uh, that's going to impact a lot of them in their ability to, you know, continue to pay rent, feed their families, and so forth, um, you know, just it, it just seems so callous and uncaring. Um, so, you know, communicate with your your officials, and you know, let them know that you know this is something that really is not only you know unfair in the extreme but really is just adding fuel to, to the fire of what coronavirus is doing to our country uh, as it impacts you know, these vital, important government employees. So, you know, and, and you know, that's, that's not the end of it. You know, it, it also looks like the um, Supreme Court, which I was talking about earlier, uh, looks like they are going to also be taking up a case this week involving the 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 decannual census uh, that is taken every ten years uh, in this country. Uh, we've talked about it on this show about getting out and making sure that you've completed the census and so forth. Well, you know now they're in the process of tabulating the numbers and beginning to prepare the information that will go to the states uh, to determine, you know, the apportionment of uh, congressional house seats according to, you know, the population of each state. It will go to guide funding for, you know, critical infrastructure programs across the country, including such things as roads and highways, schools, rail systems, hospital and, and first responder supplies and equipment and funding and, and so many more things that are determined based on the number of people that live in this state. Well, apparently, the Trump administration uh, has a case pending uh, before the Supreme Court, which will be heard uh, early this, this week, uh, perhaps as soon as today, as of the, the broadcast of this show, or tomorrow, um, where they are suing to exclude the count of people who are, quote, living in this country illegally uh, from the population count used to, as I said, divide up congressional seats and so forth. Um, the administration's top lawyers are hoping the justices on a court that includes three Trump appointees will embrace the idea 
rejected repeatedly by lower courts. It's the latest and likely the last Trump administration hardline approach to immigration issues to reach the high court. Arguments will take place on Monday, that's today, by telephone because of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, Even as justices weigh on a bid to remove for the first time millions of non-citizens from the population count that determines how many seats each state gets in the House of Representatives, as well as the allocation of some federal funding, as I just mentioned. Experts say other issues loom large for the 2020 census as it heads into uncharted territory over deadlines, data quality, and politics. So to, to understand this, the census is mandated. It is um, enshrined in the Constitution that every 10 years, a count of all persons living in the United States of America are to be counted so that an accurate representation of the number of people in each state, uh, in each local area, can be used to determine the allocation of resources that that state receives. Now, that's a simplified explanation of it, but explains the basic premise so that it it isn't a count as defined in the Constitution. It does not say that all, quote, citizens, close quote, or, you know, all except, you know, illegal immigrants, and, and again, air quotes around that, it says all persons residing in this country. That means everyone gets counted, whether you are a, a citizen by birth, by naturalization, or, you know, you are, you know, a, even an illegal immigrant, but you live and or work in the United States, uh, you are required to be counted as part of the census. Um, the, the administration has long fought the status of immigrants in this country from day one, from before day one, actually. But, you know, as an administration from day one, they have done a series of things to try and limit the number of people who can enter this country, uh, to you know, curtail the number of people who are allowed to stay in this country, even if their staying here is due to reasons that are allowed in law. For example, you know, political exi- asylum or humanita- humanitarian asylum. And, you know, it it has worked uh, almost tirelessly to find ways to keep the number of immigrants in this country to the minimum number as possible. And, you know, now what they're doing is to looking at, you know, attacking it from the back end and getting, you know, the millions of immigrants uh, who are in this country, particularly illegal immigrants, removed from the the census count and thereby affecting all of the above mentioned services that I've talked about. To give you an example, it's projected that just in California, uh, adjusting the census count to uh, eliminate illegal immigrants would, you know, cost the state of California uh, two to three seats in the House of Representatives. Um, And, you know, that If you magnify and multiply that across all of the states uh, in the country, could see a dynamic shift in the number of representatives uh, that each state has, effectively reducing the overall uh, percentage of the vote that they control. So, you know, it, it, it is, you know, again, another of the the things that this administration has done to monkey wrench uh, critical systems in this country. And, you know, you may, you know, you may believe in what this uh, involves. You may think that, you know, illegal immigrants should not have a status. But that is, you know, something that is at the core of what's going to be discussed and decided in this vote. Regardless of what you think uh, of illegal immigrants, you should be aware that the vast majority of them are actually 
financially contributing to this country in that you know they have jobs they pay taxes they pay social security uh, so they're they're not just in this country freeloading they're actually a contributing part of our country and granted in most cases they're doing work that no quote citizen American close quote would uh, would choose to do or would want to do um, you know they serve a key and vital function much of our food comes to our plates through the hands of immigrant workers in this country and that seems to get lost in the shuffle when you know we we look at it from or through the lens of the you know political hyphen racial uh, glasses that many people in this country seem to look through you know it, it is you know uh, just you know astounding that the callousness that is shown to people who you know are just following the traditions of history in this country and you know keep in mind that unless you are a member of the indigenous American population aka Native Americans uh, we're all immigrants we all came from somewhere else or our families all came from somewhere else to this country uh, for the benefits that we receive so you know the illegal immigrants that the administration is currently seeking to ban are really the latest you know chapter in a a you know 300 year history of immigration into this country so you know just something to keep an eye on um not not weighing in you know on the the scotus decision one way or the other although i will say you know the the accurate counting of everyone who lives in this country is vitally important to making sure that everyone gets the services and benefits that they need and deserve. So let's turn for the uh, last few minutes of the show and you know change gears and kind of look at what's coming you know once we get to January 20th and, and January 21st, 2021 and beyond. And we now have a new democratic uh, administration in the country. Um, one of the things that is most concerning and has been the subject of a lot of discussion in the media of late is how is the GOP in particular, if they happen to uh, retain control of the Senate through uh, getting one or two of the seats that will be determined uh, in Georgia in January. Um, but even if they don't, um, how will the GOP play a role in what the Biden administration uh, is promising to get done and needs to get done? And, you know, there are, are several aspects of it which can be significant roadblocks. Uh, one, for example, is the confirmation of the president's cabinet. Uh, the cabinet positions are all done by, you know, Senate approval. And historically, that has kind of been a perfunctory matter. And except in the most egregious cases, uh, most of the people who have been selected have been confirmed. Um, there will be a slew of legislative actions, many of which revolving around COVID-19 and, you know, other elements you know the census that we just talked about is going to going to introduce some things that are going to need to be done legislatively uh, there are economic things there are the budget uh, to avoid a shutdown of the government there are you know uh, economic stimulus measures that need to be enacted in order to help protect the people of this country and you know there is a continuing need to fill judicial appointment slots uh, there are still well over a hundred judicial appointments which have not been filled and will will not be filled under the the outgoing Re Republican administration. So it will fall to the incoming Biden administration to continue to appoint judges at the federal and district and appeals court level uh, across the country. Um, 
you know, and, and the worry is that we will see, particularly, as I said, if the Republicans retain control of the Senate, that they are going to repeat what happened after the midterms in 2010 uh, under President Obama, where basically they refused to confirm any judges or any appointments that uh, the Obama administration put forward that required Senate approval. Uh, they stonewalled all of that for the, the six years, pretty much, of the Obama presidency. And, you know, it would be a shame if that is the process that will continue. So reach out to your, your politicians political leaders, reach out to your politicians, particularly if your state is represented by, by Republicans, uh, and let them know that, you know, it's a new day, uh, we need to get this work done, and the, the stonewalling is, is something that, you know, we the people find unacceptable. So, as always, our, our call of action is communicate with your elected officials all the way up and down the line, from local to federal. That's what we need to do. All right, that's going to wrap up our show for this week. Uh, as always, I thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, please send email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. Uh, I will be posting some more information out on the Facebook page, which is firedupradio on facebook.com. And as always, you know, please stay safe. We are now you know, in the holiday season, so I wish you all a happy Happy holiday season. Uh, mask up, distance when you can't, and you know, practice good hygiene. That will do it. This is Steve. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. And I look forward to speaking to you all again in seven days. Take care, everybody. Wherever you stand, I'm calling every woman, calling every man. We're the generation that can't afford to wait. The future started yesterday, and we're already late.